If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet PlushCare, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Gist is sponsored by QuickBooks. If you work for yourself, try QuickBooks Self-Employed. It helps separate your business and personal expenses, estimate your federal quarterly taxes, and more. See what QuickBooks Self-Employed can do for you with a free 30-day trial at tryselfemployed.com slash the gist. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, May 26th, 2015. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Hello, sailor. New York Times front page. The High Line, Shake Shack, The Ballet. Fleet Week is not what it used to be. Once upon a time, sailors on leave on New York's streets after months at sea went a little wild. Liquor and female companionship were the priorities. With barstool tossing brawls, often the unintended result, now not so much. Quote, I spent way too much money at the American Girl Store, said Chief Petty Officer Justin Brown. And they talked to Caleb Lane, 24, who left the USS San Antonio with a new friend he met on board. They passed the Hustler Club without so much as a curious glance. They were headed to the American Museum of Natural History. It goes on to quote Petty Officer Lane as saying he saw Othello and Giselle at the American Ballet Theater. He liked Othello more. I'm calling BS on this trend. When the reporter from the New York Times comes a calling, wants to put your name on the front page, what are you going to say? What are you going to talk about? The goings-on at the Chagall exhibit or the debauchery in the champagne room? I think the choice is clear. But really, just even for these couple examples, call it a trend or not, but for these couple examples to exist, I I have to ask, has our fight left our fleet? Are these gentlemen warriors, these these nautical nice guys, are they enough to protect our shores? I mean, okay, fine, that's the Coast Guard. Are they enough to bombard the enemy's shores? How do we put he-men back in our seamen? What do we do? What do we do? What do we do with an artsy sailor? That's right, it's Mike Sings. Cue the music. What do we do with an artsy sailor? What do we do with an artsy sailor early in the morning? Take him to Bushwick and feed him quinoa. Take him to Bushwick and feed him quinoa. Take him to Bushwick and feed him quinoa early in the morning. Interrogate the gentrifiers on a panel discussion. Interrogate the gentrifiers on a panel discussion. Yeah, yeah, early in the morn. Acknowledge into crisis gendered privilege. Acknowledge into crisis gendered privilege. Acknowledge into crisis gendered privilege early in the morning. On the show today, raise the ensign ensign. We're doing a vexillology corner, and Maria Konnikova will be here with a powerful wake up call about insomnia. Is that bullshit? And in the spiel, Lindsey Graham for president. Sure, why not? What the hell? We'll play ball. But first, hoist up. It's flag talk. So time has come once again, and we haven't been to this particular corner in a while, but it's Vexillology Corner, our discussion of all things flags. And when we do a Vexillology Corner with Ted Kay, our resident Vexillologist. Hello, Ted. Hi. Hi. When we do a Vexillology Corner, we ask Andrew to provide the jingle. Go ahead, Andrew. What's that jingle again? 
fly the flag, flag chat. That, it seems, it seems new every time. Ted, I don't know if you know about Liberland. I didn't know about Liberland. It's a uh, less than three square mile patch of land in Serbia. They've started a country there, some libertarians, and that's all well and good, but they have a very interesting flag. Now, do you, do you know about Liberland and did you find out about Liberland because of their flag? Well, that's part of it. Liberland is a new micronation that's been uh, declared by a Czech politician named Vit Jedlička, if I'm pronouncing it correctly. And he's taken advantage of the fact that the border between Serbia and Croatia is uh, uncertain because the two countries don't agree on how to define the border. It goes along the Danube River, but one of the countries that's Serbia, believes that wherever the river is, is the border between the two countries. But Croatia says wherever the river was originally, before it was channeled and dammed and, and uh, affected by high hydrology engineers and moved around, that that's where the border should be. Just because the river moves doesn't mean the boundary should move. Mm-hmm. And that's created some small patches of land that two countries both claim. But it's also created at least one patch of land that neither country claims. And that's what this Czech politician has claimed for himself to create the free republic of Liberland. And into the confusion comes the libertarians, comes their call for high freedom, low taxes, and comes, I would say, at least a B2B plus flag. But uh, why don't you describe what we're looking at here? Interestingly, they created the flag before they found the territory to claim under the flag. I think that's very much a first, as far as I know. Oh, wow. The flag that begets a nation instead of the other way around. Indeed. So the flag, I would say, yes, a, a, B, uh, a B score on the flag. Uh, its basic design is it's a horizontal tri-bar of yellow over black over yellow, but it's got the unusual proportions of the yellow stripes are twice as wide as the black stripes. So it's two units over one unit over two units. That's a pretty good flag. In the middle of it, though, is a shield that is kind of juvenile in its uh, design. And overall, the flag has 10 different colors on it, which is a challenge. Yes. The shield is half the height of the flag, and it's divided into three sections, a dark red section, a a white section, and then a blue section at the bottom. And in the, the top section is a tree that's in uh, brown and and green and red. It looks like a fruit tree of some kind. In the middle is a a white section is a bird in flight in black and a sun in orange. And the lower section uh, is blue and it has little white lines in it to show that that represents the Danube River. Yeah, that'll get lost once school kids try to draw it with their crayons. They're not going to get the lines. (laughs) I don't think so. They have described the meanings of the flag, that the yellow represents capitalism and the black represents rebellion. The bird is for freedom, the tree is for abundance, the sun for energy, and the river represents the Danube. Which they they lucked out on because they didn't know the little plot of land would be next to the Danube. Hey, turns out it's the Danube. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, often meanings on flags are ascribed after the flag has been adopted. Right. Now, the uh, general... Okay, let's talk background first. I like the thin black stripe in the middle of a tri-bar. Botswana has something like that. I think it should be a feature on more flags. I think the racing stripe works. What about you? 
Oh, I think it does. Yeah. It's very effective. It's a good way to distinguish the tri-bar while still using the standard tri-bar pattern. Now, a flag with a bird on it, I think, is is hard. A flag with a tree is okay. You could draw the outlines, or Canada, the maple leaf. That's uh, pretty simple in terms of, you know, think about the third grader, the fifth grader has to draw it. But I don't know too many really successful bird flags. I mentioned the bird of paradise, Papua New Guinea. There's Kiribati. There's, there's Domenica, which has a fairly complex parrot. I think you're asking for a lot if you put a bird on your flag. I, I think so, and I should be cautious because I'm from Portland, and the Portlandia idea is put a bird on it. I know. I'll put a bird on it. Did you see this bag before? I didn't. Now there's a bird. <laughs> it's flying. It's free. <laughs> Though I have read theories that new nations, nations that really are desperate to communicate a lot about themselves, often do this, throw a lot of symbols there, whereas a more confident old nation, like the old nations of Europe, have a tricolor, and they're not too worried if you think the you know, the Netherlands white, blue, and red stands for something different from the France red, blue, and white. I, I guess you're saying that they're just, the newer nations are, are less self-confident and feel they need to put more things on their flag. When there's a new nation or a micronation, when was the last time you just saw a really plain flag out of them? That's right, and it's fun to look at micronations. If you go to the website micronations.com, somebody oh, cool. is actually tracking these. I saw 125 micronations from some of the originals like Sea Land off England and the Hutt River Principality in Australia, all the way up to the one of the more recent ones, the Kingdom of North Sudan, which was was declared by an American who wanted his daughter to have her wish to be a princess. Ah, that's kind of lovely. <laughs> okay, let's let's do one more piece of vexillology, and it's a country that's in the news, uh, Nepal. Very unusual flag. In fact, a unique flag, I think, as far as national flags go. Yes, Nepal's flag is the only flag that isn't rectangular in shape. There are a couple square-shaped flags. Of course, that's a rectangle, but Nepal's is not rectangular in any way. It uh, appears to be a uh, truncated triangle or uh, two triangles overlaid uh, over each one. It's kind of hard to describe, but if you if you start at the top, the left-hand side goes straight down to meet the edge of the pole, but the right-hand uh, side descends at an angle to a point and then goes inward towards the pole and then downward again to uh, another point and then straight back to the pole. I'm sure there's some uh, geometric way to describe that. That's the best I can do. It's unusual because it has these these, it's not even a triangular flag, it's a double triangle flag, yeah. and it's got these two points flying out on it. It's very distinctive. Hard to figure out how to fly it with other national flags because it's not the same proportions, but it's distinctive. It's the only national flag that's that way. Ted Kay, author of Good Flag, Bad Flag, former editor of The Raven. You know him from the North American Vexillological Association. I always say vexillological wrong. It's vexillological, right? That's right. There's, yeah. there's lalas in there. <laughs> vexillological. Well, uh, thank you very much, Ted. My wife says it's vexillology because it's vexing and silly. <laughs>
If you work for yourself, and most of us don't, right? Most of us either work for the man or are working for the weekend. So I'm speaking to you, the small segment of our audience who works for themselves. You might also enjoy Loverboy's oeuvre, but still, this is for you. If you work for yourself, try QuickBooks Self-Employed. It helps separate your business and personal expenses so you can easily track what you spend for work and what you spend on yourself. Let's say you're the lead singer of Loverboy. Those red, maroon, leathery jumpsuits, are they for your yourself or are they for work? Well, QuickBooks Self-Employed will help. It also takes the guesswork out of your estimated federal quarterly taxes, which in the case of Loverboy would be Canadian quarterly taxes. But that's beside the point. Because for you, come tax time, you know how much to set aside for Uncle Sam, not Colonel Canada, and how much stays in your pocket. Explore what QuickBooks Self-Employed can do for you with a 30-day free trial at tryselfemployed.com slash the gist. Insomnia, it's a problem. The Beatles sang about it a couple times. I Call Your Name includes the lyrics, I can't sleep at night. Oh, I can't sleep at night Since you've been gone And then later they had the song, I'm So Tired, These Beatles. They were insomniacs. A lot of people were. They were up all night, fretting, waiting, and wondering, wait a minute, is this a real condition or is this bullshit? Well, here to answer is Maria Konnikova. She covers science. She has a background, a PhD, in fact, in the behavioral sciences. How many behavioral sciences? Just one. Just one? Which is that? Psychology. Psychology. That's a good behavioral science. And she's the author of a couple books, including the forthcoming Confidence Game. You know, that's available for pre-order. Did you know that? Well, I happen to know that, Mike. Yeah, but you're not, you don't have to order it. But let's talk about when you were writing this book, were, were there many sleepless nights, Maria? There were. There yeah. were, especially two weeks leading up to the deadline. Uh-huh. There was definitely a stretch of time in there where day kind of blurred into night, blurred into day again. And yeah. during these moments, were you questioning whether your insomnia was real, like we are going to in this segment? No, I knew I wasn't sleeping. What's the definition of insomnia? <laughs> the definition of insomnia is quite interesting. It is the only sleeping disorder that is defined by the person. Mm-hmm. So you have to have... I define it as eating <laughs> you Pez have candy. To, yeah, exactly. You have to have the subjective experience of not being able to sleep when you want to sleep. Mm-hmm. And that is the definition. So if you subjectively think that you're trying to sleep and you can't, then you have insomnia. For other sleep disorders, there are actual tests that you can do. But for this one, that's the accepted definition. Now, if you talk to doctors and researchers who are actually studying this, so people who are, you know, doing sleep studies, working with people, they will say, you know, we really don't like the fact that this is the definition. We need to change it. Because some people could just say, I had trouble sleeping at night, but I eventually got to sleep. Are you an insomniac? No, I told you I eventually got sleep. But another person could say, I had trouble sleeping at night. Are you an insomniac? I told you I had trouble sleeping. Exactly. That's my definition. That's exactly. So it's a, it's a it's a really problematic thing, yeah. and a lot of people will tell you it's problematic. Um, for instance, I spoke last week to Matt Bianchi at Harvard Medical School. You don't even get him started on the definition of insomnia and how it much keeps that him needs up to at change. Night. It does yeah. keep him up at night. <laughs> so if we take the definition to mean something like not sleeping, mm-hmm. which maybe is the more conventional yeah. perceived yeah. definition, does this happen ever often? more or less than people think? So here's the really interesting thing. If you get people who say they have insomnia and who say, okay, I can only sleep two hours a night, four hours a night, Mm -hmm. one hour a night, 
there was one guy who came in to the sleep lab at Harvard and said, I haven't slept in two years. Yeah. He'd be dead yeah. if he hadn't slept in two years. But that was his perception that he hasn't really had a good night's sleep in two years. And then you hook them up to EEGs, which measure your brain waves and can tell you whether you're awake or asleep and which stage of sleep you are. Then you hook them up to a bunch of other machines. You know, you measure their heart, you measure breathing, all this stuff. And then you watch them in the lab for a few nights and you do two things. First, you ask them how long they think they slept. And then you look at their brain output and what their body is telling you about sleep. And you find that many, many times, I won't go as far as to say nine times out of 10, but a lot of times the two numbers don't line up at all. People yeah. think they slept a lot less than they did, in fact, sleep. And that difference can be an hour, two hours, three hours. So they think they're awake when really their brain is already sleeping. And so it's a really interesting disconnect between the perception of how much you sleep and whether or not you're actually sleeping. If you're in that state where you perceive yourself as awake, even though you're not quote unquote really, can that actually be a good sleep, the good REM sleep? You could be getting the best kind of sleep and still think you're awake? Well, I think what happens is a lot of these people have more micro-waking episodes, as they're called. So you end up just waking up more frequently during the night. Yeah, and, not, and you don't credit and the you don't actually periods. you don't yeah. actually realize that you were asleep for 10 minutes. When your body is starved for sleep, you're going to get the types of sleep you need the second you drift off. So your body is very, very smart when it comes to that. But... The interesting part of it is when they actually look at how people function the next day to try to see, okay, did they get a good night's rest or not? It seems to matter both what they thought mm -hmm. and objectively how much they slept. Mm -hmm. So both of those things have to be aligned. They have to think they didn't get a lot of sleep and they have to not have gotten a lot of sleep. For their performance on tests to exactly, to matter. And so forth. But if they didn't get a lot of sleep, but they thought they got a pretty good night's rest, it's really interesting. Then they perform better. Sleeping pills, do they help? So that's a really interesting question. What we know is that <laughs> the data on sleeping pills actually is not, and I'll get into trouble from people who take sleeping pills when I say this, but it's not that good. It ends up that objectively, most studies show that they only increase your sleep by 20 to 30 minutes. Minutes, wow. Minutes. Is and it that, good sleep? Is it and the sleep waves are very different from a person who is not sleep, who is just using a natural sleep. Yeah. So sleep when you're, and this actually kind of scared me when I heard it, sleep on Ambien, for instance, or on any sleeping aid, um, really looks more like you're under anesthesia than when you're, when you're sleeping normally. That's what your brain waves look more like because you're not getting a lot of the slow wave sleep. It's basically a, a different pattern. We talked to an anesthesiologist, Emery Brown, who kind of shows these comparisons of what sleeping pills look like and what an anesthesia looks like. It's eye-opening. and so Or not, as the or, case uh, might be. Or not, as the case may be. <laughs> there was, however, last week a new sleeping drug on the market. It's marketed by Merck. I don't remember what it's called, but it's the first orexin antagonist that has ever been discovered. Orexin. Yeah, orexin is this protein in your brain that helps you go to sleep. It promotes kind of this switch between sleep and wakefulness. And people have been trying to find an orexin 
agonist because they want to cure narcolepsy. Yeah. People who are narcoleptics don't have any erexin. An agonist is an anti-antagonist. Right, but they erexin. haven't been able to find yeah. it. But instead, they found this erexin antagonist. And it's a totally new class of sleep drug that's never been discovered before. And so people think that it might be better, but they don't know yet. Wow. And if people, you know, sext and drive on Ambien, just think what they're going to do on the erection antagonist. <laughs> well, we didn't even start talking Trade about that. Trade arms to the yeah. Iranians and the Contras. <laughs> I mean, who knows? Well, we haven't even talked about those side effects of sleeping pills. I mean, you can get psychosis. You can yeah. get halluc- hallucinations. Yeah. You get sleepwalking, sleep eating. Yes, you do get sleep sex. Yeah. There are very interesting behaviors that emerge with a lot of those I bought AOL in 2007 because of it. <laughs> I don't know if my timeline and when it was introduced lines up. But yeah. Anyway. Okay. And so you can't, you can't get researchers to agree on many things who study insomnia, but all of them seem to agree that they will try almost anything before prescribing a sleeping aid to their patients. All right. I'm going to frame this in a fair way. Insomnia, as it is commonly understood, people can't sleep. Is that bullshit? Yes and no. Mm-hmm. They perceive that they can't sleep. They are not often, they are not always accurate in their perception, and it's a bad definition. But because of the, we can, we could say it's not bullshit. But it's because not of bullshit. The definition. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Maria Konnikova, wide awake and, you know, I'm going to say bushy-tailed. At least three quarters bushy. She plays this game with us, and her new book is called The Confidence Game. Thanks, Maria. Thanks, Meg. I'm so tired. I haven't slept a wink. I'm so tired. My mind is on the blink. I wonder should I get up and fix myself a drink? No, no, no. And now the spiel, Graham Mentum. Over the weekend, there was a gathering of conservative thought and conviction that the state of Oklahoma had never seen, except perhaps when James Inhofe denied climate change alone. It was the Southern Republican Leadership Conference, and it set the Sooner State to simmer. K4 Channel 4 reports. Following the action today is News Channel 4's Sheldra Brigham. Sheldra, I understand that there were a couple of no-shows today. Cut to Sheldra, standing maybe next to the convention center's loading dock, an expanse of empty concrete behind her, explaining that Mike Huckabee sent his wife. All right, aside, Mike Huckabee turns on the Iowa straw poll. He sends the missus to Oklahoma. Is this guy incredibly confident or what? Huckabee's taking a lot for granted here. Maybe someone upstairs is telling him something. I I mean the Koch brothers, of course. Anyway, among the no-shows were some actual U.S. senators who had to attend to senatorial business, blame Rand Paul. He kept them all in D.C. because of his persnickety intransigence about having his data collected. Some of the senators sent video messages. I am most interested in one senator, a senator who might not be the tops of the polls, but that doesn't mean he couldn't make some news at the Republican Southern Leadership Conference. Ladies and gentlemen, South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham on how he learned of the veracity of the Persian. My family owned a restaurant, a pool room, and a liquor store. And uh, everything I know about uh, the Iranians, I learned in the pool room. I ran the pool room when I was a kid, and I met a lot of liars, and I know the Iranians are lying. Cut to press release, Washington, D.C. 
the National Iranian American Council, the largest Iranian American grassroots organization in the United States, strongly condemns Senator Lindsey Graham. RSC, comments that, quote, Iranians are liars and demands an apology to the Iranian-American community. The senator's repulsive remarks are racist, period. NIAC President Trita Parsi said this type of discourse should have no place in American politics. Okay, come on. I don't think the senator was speaking about all Iranians, just the ones who say that they're going to follow the nuclear deal. You know, when the Iranians promise they won't enrich plutonium, I don't believe those Iranians. That's what he was saying. I don't think he was talking about your random shopkeeper in Kermanshaw, your average accountant in Zanjan. Oh, wait, more breaking news. Breaking. The North American Pool Players Association. Senator Graham's remarks are a masse shot of ineptitude set against a warped felt of insensitivity. We wish to blackball the senator, else he snookers the American people. Okay, that press release didn't happen. But you know what I want to do now? I want to play more of the Graham speech. I watched all of it. It wasn't terrible. On shows like this, my show, The Gist, and on cable shows, we play the clip that was most ridiculous or most controversial. And I don't just want to leave it at Iranians and liars and pool. I want to play a couple of other sound bites from his address because they're more substantive. Graham talked about, first of all, started talking about his own life story. His parents never graduated high school. They operated this restaurant and pool hall. Mom died when Lindsay was 21. Dad died 15 months later. He was underinsured. He could have used some help. Now, Graham's takeaway is that he doesn't need a lecture from Democrats on insurance because he lived it. Well, okay, fine. Putting aside the lecture, didn't he actually just need the insurance? Well, here's his answer to that, I think, rather obvious question. Those medical bills from my mother's disease wiped us out because we were underinsured. So I don't need a lecture from a Democrat about health care. I know what it's like to be underinsured, but I don't want the federal government running everything and putting us in a system where you get what the government gives you when they want to give it to you. Graham goes on to praise Social Security and again talks about not needing a lecture on the importance of Social Security from Democrats. So whenever Democrats favor and are more associated with a policy that Graham favors, he doesn't say I favor that. He says, don't lecture me about that. Okay, fine. But the bulk of Graham's message to the Republicans in Oklahoma, the bulk of his political career really is that the world is a dangerous place, an unsafe place, and the U.S. is vulnerable. Talked about Barack Obama's decision to withdraw troops from Iraq. That decision to withdraw all troops uh, in spite of good military advice because he wanted to keep a campaign promise has allowed Iraq and Syria to become hell on earth. And it's just a matter of time if he doesn't change his policies that we're going to get hit here at home. There are thousands of foreign fighters going into Syria with Western passports that can wait get their way here. President Bush was smart enough to adjust his policies. He employed the surge when we needed a surge. President Obama is doubling down on a bad policy. The next time you vote for President of the United States, make sure that you're voting for a commander-in-chief that knows what the hell they're doing. Foreign policy. Lindsey Graham is saying he is the man to correct the mistakes of the current president. That is Graham's argument. That's it right there. Well, there's a little more to the argument. God blesses the nation that blesses Israel. Okay, yeah, you got to say that. But Graham's argument, that's Graham's argument as Graham wants to argue it. It's not a tiny soundbite that's unmoored from the overall context. It's not easy to misunderstand or, I don't know, maybe it's what he meant. Who knows what Lindsey Graham really thinks about the mendacity of your average Hamandani. It's a compelling message. 
that Graham is offering. I argue with it almost every chance I get. Yes, ISIS has gained key cities, but Iraq is not on the verge of toppling. Yes, ISIS would like to kill Americans. Can they? Will they? That's more doubtful. Be vigilant, but not cowed. I've said that over and over. Putin, by the way, is not on the march. He's on his heels. And the Chinese, look, it's a complicated world. But the sabers out of Beijing have nothing on our Soviet enemies over whom we prevailed. So I let Graham have his say. You know what I think about his argument. Now, is it a winning argument? I don't think so. I think almost all diehard Republicans believe that assessment of the world. And therefore, all Republican candidates, maybe not Rand Paul, but almost all the others, will paint their version of this picture. And therefore, Republican primary voters can tick off the believes we're going to hell in a handbasket box and vote for a candidate other than Lindsey Graham, maybe a candidate who offers more in terms of domestic programs or more in terms of family values or more in terms of just charisma. But I did want to give the senator his due and not just leave him standing there via satellite behind the eight ball. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi repelled the Spanish Armada all the while leisurely leafing through the latest copy of Architectural Digest. In between stints as managing producer, Joel Meyer both commands a Ticonderoga-class guided missile cruiser and writes provocative Downton Abbey fan fiction. Executive producer Andy Bowers is a certified frogman and was outraged by Peter Gelb's mounting of Tosca at the Met. The Gist has a Twitter feed. Do you know that? What I would like is for the number of subscribers to that Twitter feed to be, I don't know, let's say a 20th of our listenership. We're undersubscribed on Twitter. It's twitter.com slash slate gist. The gist eschews the efforts of the overly mainstream Radiohead in favor of Deerhoof or Deer Hunter, one of the deers. But aside from being Radiohead poo-pooers, we're also deep sea divers. Did you know that? It's true. In both cases, we know to avoid the bends. Thanks for listening. <laughs>